You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Okay, so joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today, Peter Bogosian, uh, philosopher, specializing in critical thinking, author, and many other things. Peter, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast, my friend. Welcome. I love that accent. Very, very good. <laughs> Excellent. So we were just talking about jujitsu. So when did you start jujitsu? Oh, very, very recently. Um, very recently. I'm talking maybe two months, only a couple of sessions in. Um, How's it going for you? It's it's very, very fun, but it's very, very humbling at the same time. That is certainly, certainly true. Um, so let, let, let's talk about this be, before we get started here. Yeah. So I've been doing jujitsu a long time and I've seen the sport change very, very, very dramatically. Like it used to be super roughhousey. And when I did it long ago, like we used to, uh, I trained in stick and knife fighting for years. And so, you know, we would do stick and knife fighting and then just take it to the ground. Uh, but those were, those were other times. Dan Medina was the guy who gave me my black belt and stick fighting and he's still around you can see videos of of, of him online and he was it i mean he is an extraordinarily dangerous man i mean truly dangerous but you know when um i don't i don't do the stick stuff to the ground anymore i just do jujitsu i don't th throw strikes either but i i agree with you it's an incredibly humbling experience and it's also something that can't be faked because it's close to reality and the closer something is to reality, the less, the, the more, the more difficult it is to, to fake, mm. like playing a musical instrument or speaking a, another language. It, it can't be faked. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I wish you luck on your journey, your jujitsu journey. And re just remember, I'll give you my unsolicited advice. Uh, if you're on the bottom, take top, fight for top. If you're on stop, a top, stay on top. So top top is the key, because um, you don't you don't want to be fighting against gravity, um, mm. and and then the other thing is it's far better to work on your escapes than it is your submissions. So don't don't be the guy who taps out you know white belts or blue belts <laughs> or whatever. Be be the guy who nobody can pin down. Yeah. Well, when you like mentioned Gordon Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. When you mentioned um, jujitsu, it didn't really take me by surprise because it seems as though a lot of very um, effective people uh, seem to enjoy jujitsu. Why do you think that is? Um, th that's a very, very, very good question, and and I'm gonna not answer it. <laughs> um, I'm I'm gonna ask why people who are woke avoid jujitsu, hmm. and then I'll answer it. So woke people, people caught in the orbit of critical social justice or social justice ideology, uppercase S and J, or used to be called kind of regressive leftism or the successor ideology, Wesley Yang calls it that, whatever you want to call it. They don't create, they don't make, they don't build, they don't compete, they destroy. And to be successful at jujitsu, well, to be successful at anything, it 
takes an insane amount of work to truly be successful. But to be successful at jujitsu, it takes, and it, your word is perfect. I mean, you have to humble yourself. I can't even, so tens of thousands of times before you get your, your black belt. I was just watching the uh, Machado video today, right before this. And that guy is just smooth as butter. You know, these guys at the upper tier are just, they're just like, my, my goal is to make my jujitsu indistinguishable from napping. So if anybody looked at me, they thought that I was like half asleep on the mat. That's that's a level of relaxation that I aspire to. But I, but I think that the amount of work and what one has to do to, I don't know, prostrate isn't quite the right word, but to humble oneself tens of thousands of times before one advances. I don't think woke people as a whole can do that. I don't I don't think it's possible. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I'm I was just trying to think of an example of someone who I could think of who's, you know, quite vocal or that way politically, but I can't think of anyone who's uh, quite a, probably quite effective on the mat. Yeah, and look at people who aren't woke. I mean, there are some gyms that are left-leaning for sure. I can think of one here in Portland that's kind of left-leaning. But most most of the jiu-jitsu gyms, I wouldn't say they're political, but it just takes a certain attitude to do jujitsu. I mean, you can't, it is not a sport for everyone, although everybody should do it. You know, I've been watching those, those fights on fight Haven. Have you seen that Twitter feed? No. Oh, they're really interesting. So basically people send in uh, fight videos and, and, and uh, I saw a super disturbing one today. It was more of a snuff film than a fight video, but it just shows, you know, pe- people in street fights and what is consistently amazing to me in those videos is people simply do not know how to fight, yet they initiate fights. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's such a profound, you know, Socrates talks about um, if you had all the, the right information, if you had all the information, you wouldn't act in certain ways and you wouldn't believe certain things. I mean, it, you know, from the little jujitsu you've done, I mean, that is an extraordinarily Somebody with, first of all, if somebody does jujitsu and somebody else does not do jujitsu, the person who does not do jujitsu simply does not have a chance unless they have something else going for them. Like they're only, uh, uh, Matt Thornton has a great book on this. Um, and we can change the topic if you want, but The Gift of Violence, which is coming out pretty soon. Uh, it's like having a superpower. So it's possible if you're really good at Muay Thai, because there are only about five things that work Muay Thai, boxing, kickboxing, uh, savat wrestling, it's possible bracketing record wrestling that you could win. Although if the person has reasonably good takedowns, like a, you know, high school wrestler, they're going to go down. It's just, it's, it's very difficult to avoid being taken down or at least being in a clinch with someone who is completely committed to taking you to the ground. Um, but what's amazing to me about those videos is that people simply do not understand the consequences of what fighting means. Like, like they just, and yet they, they let their anger overcome them. You put those people on a mat for two months and then it's the best form of anger control available because guys would be, you know, half their size would be wiping, wiping the floor with them. Hmm. It's incredibly, and you cannot lose your temper when you do that. You just, you can't lose your temper because someone could just truly kick the shit out of you. So 
there's two um former ufc fighters that i've spoken to on this podcast one uh george st pierre and two dan hardy um oh yeah both um i well just from talking to him i i realized quickly that both are, have a real interest in in philosophy and dan hardy in particular um was telling me about how he you know he, he reads books on philosophy from the perspective of how he can implement that philosophy into his training um do you see the do you see any parallels between philosophy and fighting absolutely yeah i do but it doesn't mean everyone who does philosophy can engage in combat sports so first there's a kind of dialectic right so if you if you read the platonic dialogues for it's the best example you know someone says something someone else counter socrates you know what is piety what is justice what is what have you and then socrates counters that and then they engage each other so there's a kind of intellectual pugilism if you will there's a kind of intellectual combativeness um the the other thing is if, if you do philosophy right and I'm convinced that philosophy itself, the discipline, has become not only utterly, I was going to use a Star Trek word, but that I, I've done so, but I figured why. I've already talked about jujitsu. Let's not go down the Star Trek rabbit hole. <laughs> um, why, why um, if, if, you, if, you do, if you do philosophy right, and I, I don't think philosophy is done right. In fact, I think it's done wrong, and I've never managed to do well in anything to do with philosophy. I don't think I fit the mold. You have to have a kind of, um, you have to have a kind of openness to ideas and arguments and that you have to entertain them and know them well enough so that you can respond to them. And it's very similar to a combat sport. Like you really have to get, because it can't be faked, you really have to understand why things work and why things don't work. And then you have to, it's like a chess with far more variables, um, speed chess with far more variables. So I, I do think there's a, a close connection there. But again, I, I just because somebody is good at, or, or has published a lot in philosophy, I can think of some of my former colleagues, there's simply no way they would ever go on a mat because they won't undergo the process that it takes to be good, which is tapping and submitting. You, when you were talking about um, heading off, uh, while you were talking about the gyms in Portland, it, it just yeah. remind it reminded me of a. I was speaking to Brett Weinstein the last time I yeah. spoke to Brett Weinstein on this podcast. He described Portland to me as a third world city. Yeah. What would you say it's to that? A, I, well, Brett's friend, um, Portland is like an open sewer. It's a cesspool. Uh, that's why I'm moving. As a friend, I'm kind of announcing it the first time here. I'm leaving. Well, an exclusive. I just, I, I it is an exclusive. I despise it. I used to love this place, but it's been hijacked by social justice. Um, and people still haven't learned their lessons. Uh, the mayor is a public disgrace. Uh, Ted Wheeler, he, him. Um, you should check out his uh, Twitter feed. You know, the murder rate is up 300%. I, Matt Thornton would be a great guest for this podcast. He could really speak to this in, in a way that I cannot in terms of statistics and the violence. Um, you know, I, so I, I agree with uh, probably talking a lot because I've had maybe 100 cups of coffee. Uh, I, I coffee up before I go to jujitsu. Um, um, so, yeah, no, I, I agree. The homelessness is terrible. Addiction is a huge problem. They don't have, a, as Michael Schellenberger writes in San Francisco, they don't have a shelter-first housing earned policy. Um, 
they have open tent camping, and I just read something, uh, a large number of fires in uh, the largest, the mode, the most number of fires are caused by um, uh, homeless folks in uh, burning things in tents, whether that's, you know, bring barbecues in there or I don't even know, but, but, but it's from tents and, and the, the crime. So I have this thing on my phone. It's the ring doorbell app. Mm. You know what that is? So it's like, yeah. it's like every time someone comes in my house, I have to have more TV cameras all around my house. It never used to be like this, by the way. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm constantly getting these alerts, uh, has gives you a special sound like ding, 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 ding. And it's all the crazy shit that happens in Portland. You know, it's like murder over here, porch pirate over here, car stolen here, dog mutilated over here. It's just this constant stream. And that's among the people who have the app. <laughs> so um, I think I, I, one more thing, and I'm, I'm talking a lot. I won't talk so much, but oh, please. Um, one more thing. I think it's really important that we have a, a kind of um, democratic accountability. And so the, what is happening to Portland now is a direct response of how people have voted. It is a direct response of the attitudes that people have. And so to expect anything other than what it is, is it's foolishness. It's a kind of, it's a kind of insanity. So of course you're going to get this. How, what else could it be? They, you couldn't get anything else given the governance that you yourselves have voted in. You meaning the people of Portland. It's interesting. Um, it reminds me of, I remember listening to Jordan Peterson um, talking about what he said publicly, that there's almost a list of universities these days in, and cities in, and universities in certain cities that you should never send your children to. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, a list of universities? I don't think you really should send your kids to any universities. Um, wow. My, my, my daughter, I was actually on Dave Rubin when I was in Florida, and he asked me a, a similar question. I told him, if you want to see what people really believe, tell the, ask them what they tell their children. Uh, my my daughter is will be uh, at the age where she will go to college soon, and I told her don't go to college, become an electrician. I don't think anybody should go to college, and I never would have imagined ten years ago I would have ever have said that. Let's see, twenty twenty three, twenty three. No, eleven years ago or so, I've never imagined I would have said that. They're indoctrination mills. Wow. If you were to try and convince someone um, who was dead, say if, if your daughter, for example, was dead set on university, what would be your main argument against going? Um, well, she is dead set uh, on going. And I, I, I told her that, you know, she, I'll facilitate helping her live the kind of life that she, she wants to lead. We, we adopted her two and a half from China. She was a, a waiting child. She's a wonderful kid. Um, and so, um, you know, I think I've, I think I've, I think we've done a very good job of that up, up, up to now. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop. So ultimately I think she has to take, she, she has to make her own decisions. You know, I would never withhold an opportunity for her because I, I think it's uh, you know, morally wrong. Like I, I, am at the point where I think going to college now is a more, not going to college or going to college, a moral issue. My main argument would be, oh, let's bring it back to the martial arts if I may. Um, my main argument would be it is better to stare at a wall for four hours than to practice something that will lead you away from reality for four hours. 
like Tai Chi. You 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 will not win a fight by by silliness or nonsense. In fact, not only will you not win a fight, uh, it'll actually decrease your chances for winning a fight. College teaches you things as a system that the fundamental values that the overwhelming majority of college, they're just out of alignment with with reality and they're in their own little reality bubbles. And it's it's better to not learn things that are it's better to do nothing than to learn things that are false. Plus, you know, you you're also incurring a lot of debt uh, and a college degree isn't what it used to be. But by the way, you know, uh, I have some um, friends who are extremely high up in tech companies. I won't mention who they are. And one of the things they they told me um, is that they they look at people's social media presence and they look at where do they go to college. And there are a few places they're just like, nope, nope. Like Yale is topping the list. A lot of the Ivies, not uh, Harvard, uh, you know, the Oberlin, where else did he tell me? Um, uh, I, I can't remember off the top of my head where he told me because we were drinking, but um, uh, just book off, off, off the table. So uh, I think it could actually work against you, especially as the crisis of legitimacy in institutions grows. You mentioned that you couldn't imagine yourself saying that 10 years ago. Um, it's almost yeah. been, it was about 10 years ago I started university. Um, and since then, I, I've always been quite an optimistic person, but everywhere I turn now, um, it seems that academia is, is heading down um, troublesome paths. Ten years ago to now, what was the shift? What what caused the shift in your mindset where you first thought something could be happening here? Oh, it's a. I'm I'm trying to talk less because I'm so hyper caffeinated, and I keep. That's a huge question. Yeah. Um. Wow. Okay. Um. The shift. Wow. Okay. Um. That's a very complicated question. I released a series on that. Lyle Asher universities uh, series is universities are becoming cults. It's on my, my YouTube channel, Peter Bogosian. Um, okay. It's a complex question. It deals with colleges of education in college of education. They give out teaching certificates. This is just the bottom line. The people who get those teaching certificates are universally indoctrinated into by a single book, Paulo Freire's the Brazilian educators pedagogy, the oppressed. Um, uh, just, uh, just reading something again, um, about the influence that Henry Giroux, Giroux and Paulo Freire had on education. You don't teach for the truth. You teach to liberate from oppression. Um, and so kids going into schools in K through 12 have been indoctrinated by teachers who have gone through that critical theory training, that, that training to help them recognize and then overcome, fight, activate against depression. Couple that with college and university administrators themselves being product as, products of ed school by and large, and uh, people getting degrees then getting out and going into the workforce and taking things like trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, et cetera. And the new one is belonging, which you hear a lot more of recently. Inclusion is another one, another biggie. So, so you have that manifest in the workforce. You also have what I uh, published a piece in the Wall Street Journal about. You also have idea laundering so that the, the ideas in journals, 
um, they're just the musings of ideologues that pa- in peer-reviewed journals that pass themselves off as knowledge, but they're not knowledge. So you have this constellation of factors that converged um, in what Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay and cynical theories call applied postmodernism. It's basically taking the old postmodernists, Derrida, Foucault, et cetera, the French thinkers, and how that's manifested. So I, I think the, that manifestation is in the disciplines, across the disciplines. It started in fringe departments uh, with fringe folks like gender studies. It slowly seeped out to um, humanities. Then it seeped out to the university infrastructure, you know, and, and it's in STEM. And you see it in things like diversity statements, et cetera. But it's been a, it's been a very rapid uh, uh, blitzkrieg without a war. The worse you see this problem coming, do you think there's a, we're ever going to enter a sort of post-woke era where we get to a point where it can't go any further and we start to go back the other way? Yeah, I think, I think we're at that point now. I just tweeted something about that last night. I think that the, and Michael Schellenberger, again, I mentioned it before, but, but we were going to do, uh, we we're going to have a debate on this until the, the, he kind of got dragged into the Twitter files. The question is, are we at peak woke now? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, although we're far, far, far more woke now than we were, say, in 2010. And there are metrics that people can or have used to make that judgment. It's inevitable all social movements come and go and they fade wokeism is a particularly nasty one because it destroys the institutions, the democratic institutions. It also uh, gives the enemies, um, there's a danger right now in the anti-woke movement and I see it. I see people who are anti-woke becoming, um, and I can understand how they can, they can become like this. They're just becoming enraged. They're just becoming enraged and, and, um, and I, I also see uh, uh, the backlash dipping into uh, tribalism and ideology and uh, uh, terrible attacks. Like, you know, I think Matt Walsh is, is uh, I, I could not possibly disagree with his approach and some of the things that he said more. I think the guys from Trigonometry, my friend um, Kissin, did it did a good job to point that out but i think we're seeing we're seeing we're starting to see a backlash at this point uh you know lindsay used to always say james lindsay used to say you know what's your woke breaking point what's the point in which you've realized this is insane that you can't take it anymore and i think that the thing that changed the tide this is just my speculation but i think it's the testimonies of detransitioners hmm. Peterson just had uh, excellent Chloe, I can't remember her name, uh, excellent podcast. And more and more, I just tweeted out a documentary that someone sent my assistant about that. There's just the, the, the unbelievably heartfelt testimonies of people who were, as children, had their genitals mutilated, and now they have serious regrets. And you had an, in, an institutional structure that made that very easy for them. And, and people like myself or Colin Wright or Abigail Schreier or Deborah So or Kathleen Stock or Andrew Sullivan or any of the other people who have been calling this out, the 
the opprobrium that got heaped on us was insane. The personal attacks, the, you know, sending things to my home, uh, you know, turf transphobe. But I think that's the thing that, that finally pushed people over the, over the edge. Well, when Douglas Murray was on this podcast, we asked him, um, about whether he sort of worries sometimes um obviously putting yourself out there putting an opinion out there that isn't you know well that is seen as controversial these days um whether it should be or not that's another question but and he talked about the importance of standing your ground correct do you ever worry about you know being so bold in, in, in speaking your truth. Do you worry about the backlash? What could possibly come back on you? Or are you at the point now where you just want to, it makes you want to dig your heels in even more? That's a, that's a great question. I've, I've actually, Douglas stayed in my home. I've actually spoken <laughs> to, to Douglas about that. Um, so he, I, I, now I know why you get a lot of big names. Your questions are excellent. Um, so, um, Here's what I think about that. A few things. First, as long as you're willing, so I don't agree with the this idea of digging your heels in. As long as you're willing to revise your beliefs, in other words, to change your mind, you should be able to put out any argument that you want. And if you're willing to listen to counter arguments or look at, you know, to the best of your ability, there are obviously things you can't understand, data sets, et cetera. You know, I'm not going to sit there and understand, you know, um, you just listen to Eric Weinstein talk about Dirac equations there. There are obviously things I can't understand, but to the best of your ability, if you look at evidence and data and you're willing to change your mind, yeah, sure. What, then, then that's why I don't think that those commitments should be unshakable or even commitments at all. But the second thing is there's so much nastiness and so much noise and so much vitriol heaped on people who have opinions that do not accord with the, the dominant moral orthodoxy. You know, if you have a morally unfashionable opinion, they come for you, but they almost never come for your argument. And I'm going to give you two examples of this, three examples, if I may. Um, and this is a really hard pill to swallow, but I'm going to give you it. You have to not listen to these people whatsoever. You, you literally cannot listen to them. And the reason for that is some people simply have nothing of substance to add, literally nothing. I have nothing of substance to add when it comes to flying an airplane. Hmm. So if I have not, so if you're trying to fly an airplane and I'm criticizing you, if, if, if you wouldn't listen to my advice about how to fly an airplane, why should you listen to my criticism? Now, here's one more component of your, of your, God, I'm really super caffeinated right now. There's, there's one more component of this, and that is um, left-wing media will not have on people they perceive as on the right. You know, again, Constantine Kissin gave that wonderful speech at Oxford that went viral, has woke on too far. Uh, if, if you haven't heard it, it's really, it's an extraordinary talk. John Cleese asked, Constantine was saying, oh, you know, the left-wing media won't have me on. John Cleese was saying, you know, why won't you have him on? Uh, I, you know, there's a feeding frenzy every time I, you know, have a piece of content or release something or do something for the University of Austin. I get everybody on the right, you know, Fox, you know, 
everybody, you know, been on Gutfeld. He won me again. I, I was sick, but you know, Tucker Carlson, everybody on the right, but crickets. You have that expression over there in Wales, yeah. nothing crickets, nothing, nothing on the left. And then, so then you go on the right, right wing shows and people say, Oh, look, Kissin, Bogosian, Douglas Murray. They're only, uh, they're right wing maniacs. Why don't they go on left wing shows? Well, you don't go on left wing shows because you're not invited. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is running for president. Why? Why isn't? Why isn't he being? Why isn't he being interviewed by CNN, by NPR? And I don't mean print interview. Uh, I mean, um, I mean video interview. You know, uh, and, and the reason is so, so. I can explain the. I can explain the reasons for you. They're actually quite interesting if you you want to hear. But that's the answer to the question. Mm. Just touching on that. Um... With these people who sort of attach themselves to uh, what we would call woke causes, um, Brett Weinstein gave a bit of a theory on that to me in that he said that you tip, you find that typically these people don't have a lot going on um, in their life um, outside of maybe their nine to five. And they just trying to sort of substantiate some sort of meaning into their life by attaching them to attaching themselves to a cause um, that sort of gives them something to stand for. Would you agree with that? Yeah, largely. As, as long as that doesn't con consist of actual work, like jujitsu. Mm. Like they, if it's ripping down a statue or um, railing against a system or sending off emails or, or attempting to dox people, that's fine. But if it's something that involves pushback of, or struggle, they won't do it. You mentioned briefly there the University of Austin. Um, could you just explain to our audience the purpose behind that and what they they can expect from it? That's a great question. Um, so it's no surprise that free speech is under attack in basically every university in the country. It's also no surprise that there's been wide scale ideological capture in American universities and also K through systems and college of education which we spoke about the solution to woke ideological capture of universities is not an anti-woke university that's not the solution the solution is is not a another liberty or a christian school or, or what have you the, the solution to that is independent institutions like university of austin or ralston college where People can ask sincere inquirers, can ask questions and be challenged, have their, have their arguments challenged and have a capacity or first they need a tool set to engage. That's one of the things that I do when I, when I go down like this summer for the forbidden courses, you know, we give people a tool set. We don't just throw them in the deep end and say, here, have at, have at it with each other. So, you know, we talk about arguments, evidence, how to listen, uh, how to formulate responses, why changing your mind, which I spoke about is, is important and techniques to do that. So the University of Austin is a new university. 2024 is the year that it's looking to go live. Uh, people like Joe Lonsdale, Barry Weiss, Neil Ferguson, myself, Ayan Hersiali, uh, helped start it. I'm a founding faculty member. I'm not in the the board of directors um um 
There are also a board of advisors, there's teachers like Kathleen Stock and Thomas Chatterson Williams. Um, David Mamet is, is on that. Oh, he does jujitsu too. Um, so, uh, yeah, how does that answer your question? Oh, amazing. So outside of, I guess it sort of ties in, but in terms of traditional academia, we've talked about the problems. Is there anything left good? Is there anything left to salvage? Or is in your in your mind, is that exercise futile? Not not only is it futile, but every attempt and any attempt to salvage it just delays its inevitable collapse. So if you really wanted to help the system and we're releasing a ah, new and ah, it's another new exclusive, uh, we'll be releasing a project this week I've been working on called Don't Donate. Uh, don't donate to your alma mater should be the easiest ask in the world. Just stop donating. The schools that that people went to, even well, what you said when you graduated, even 2010, uh, they're very different than the schools today. And and I, even though I know nothing about your school, I do know that it's affected the Anglosphere, and I do know that it's even out of the Anglosphere, which is what I did when I was in Hungary. And I wrote the forward to Rajiv Maholtra's book, Snakes in the Ganga, about I have a I have a copy right over there about. Um, wokeism as a neo-colonial export from American universities to India. So uh, don't donate, stop donating. So let's expedite the demise of these institutions. Uh, they're teaching people false things. It's like even worse than Tai Chi, right? Because if you learn Tai Chi, you'll just get the shit kicked out of you if you try to apply it. You won't, if you try, now if you try, if we have people run around trying to institutionalize Tai Chi, that's a, a more apt analogy, because that's what we have. We have people who have been taught things that are just divorced from reality, running around in control, who have done significant institutional vandalism to organizations uh, and and our our democracy. So I, I think we're we're better leaving these things completely alone and letting them collapse on their own. I was just at in in Florida interviewed Charles Negi, psychology professor there. He has an absolutely fascinating story of what they did to him. And there are so many people who have suffered grotesque injustices at the hands of diversity, equity, and inclusion offices. I mean, in his he's such a gentle, decent soul. And his story is so crazy. I mean, it's just like all these crazy things. So why would you want to try to prop up an institution that routinely uh, commits injustices against people who ha are hetero hetero heterodox voices? It doesn't even make any sense. There's nothing salvageable there. Let it burn. When I mentioned you were coming on the show uh, in our newsletter, we were hit with a with a bunch of emails on, on topics um, that our audience wanted me to ask you about. Um, okay. So I'd like to transition into those as we start to wind down before we let you uh, embark on your snowy journey to jujitsu. Excellent, um, excellent. <laughs> you, you've been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we recently saw um, Peterson, uh, for instance, become investigated by the, the College of Ontario. Um, Correct. What were your thoughts when you saw this all break in originally? Oh, I signed a letter uh, with John Haidt and uh, Harris and uh, uh, many of the usual suspects defending uh, Peterson. I think that that letter was the, uh, started by Schellenberger. Um, 
my thoughts were that this is a great example of organizational institutional corruption. But my, my other thoughts were, it, it, so, okay, so let, let's take a step back from this. So if you go, in fact, you, you can do this right now on, on your computer, we can do this live. If you go to scholar.google.com, what, what, would you mind doing that for me? I can certainly try. Okay, are you there? I'm there. Okay, now type in Jordan Peterson, please. Citations, 19,665. Yeah, yeah. H, H, H index, 58. Yeah. I10 index, 107. That, that, the H index of 58 is extraordinarily high. Now, so, so that's, this is basically, <clears throat> excuse me, a measure. And if you look at his, his articles, like cited by the year, 2,195, 1,189, 987, right. yeah. 791. Now, okay, the, so, so the reason that I'm mentioning that is that it, it tells you something. It doesn't tell you everything, right? Yeah. So in the sciences, the hard sciences, those H indices tend to be higher. In my discipline of philosophy, they tend to be much, much lower. The number of people who cite, the you know, the, the journals don't have that much traction, so they tend to have... have, have um, 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 it tends to, 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 tends to be far more difficult to, if you, if you put in, for example, you don't, don't do this now, but like Dan Dennett, Daniel Dennett is the highest, I think in the world, um, um, H index. Okay. So the reason I'm mentioning this at all is because if you look at Jordan Peterson's H index, and then you compare it to the college of Ontario's, you know, those, those charlatans, it's off the chart. There is no comparison whatsoever. And that's not even public persona, book sales, you know, teaching evaluate. I mean, it's, that has none of it. So one of the things you see over and over again is you see groups of underaccomplished, disaffected malcontents, and they go after people who are accomplished. But you see, okay, so this is very interesting. So they can go after them there, like trying to take away Peterson's license because they have a mechanism, but they can't go after them on the mat, right? Do you get the connection? They can't go after them in jujitsu because it's real and, and they're playing in make-believe land. So in make-believe land, it's really easy to use the mechanisms of the institution to take down your ideological enemies, but that doesn't, you can't, that doesn't work in anything that's real. It doesn't, it won't work in boxing. It won't work in, you know, anything that has corrective mechanisms. Well, I love that it was very practical and that'll be quite the edit job when I try and uh, put my uh, computer activity <laughs> over the top of that one, but I look forward to it. <laughs> I love it. Um, a, we spoke a little bit earlier about, um, you mentioned there being this, uh, breaking point for, for a lot of people when it comes to um, <coughs> woke culture. Yeah, um, that was Jim's question. Yeah, and one of, um, one of the topics that someone sent in um, sort of reminds me of that. And I remember when I first saw this, and it was Stanford University uh, banning the words uh, oh, man yes. hours, grandfather, brave, right. killing two birds with one stone. When I hear that, it almost... I. Th Surely for them, that would have a, a sort of net negative effect because I think 
the more that they they put out the, you know this sort of stuff i think like we talked about that's more than anything it's going to start pushing people back the other way because i i'd uh, imagine for a lot of people that's their breaking point okay so um there's a famous line in a presidential debate where ronald reagan i think it said said to walter mondale there you go again i'm going to say that to you there you go again there you go again using reason and rationality to try to navigate they don't use reason and rationality to navigate, but your assumption, your because you view the problem and solving problems that way, you assume other people do. Now, there in this universe, there is no looking at the other side. There is no by design of, embedded within the ideology. That's why they don't debate. That's why they don't debate. They don't even have conversations. You know, they have a whole linguistic infrastructure for this. Mm-hmm. No, no, no platforming, non-consensual, no platforming. They believe that the problem is dialogue itself. It's racist. It's transgressive, uh, epistemic pushback. Um, so, so, and in, in, in other words, so they're not bouncing these ideas off of anybody. They're in echo chambers. And when you're in echo chambers, this stuff makes total sense. And you put it out and then there's feedback. You know, the world is like, what the fuck? These people are insane. But here's the crazy thing about it. They don't even course correct when their enrollment numbers are down. Like they're not, it's not that the money can hook them in. And, and there are reasons for that. You know, the they're getting large salaries. Uh, the DEI bureaucrats at Stanford in particular, the, the, the ratio at Stanford is almost as many bureaucrats as students. Um, so no, there's no corrective mechanism. Oh, and one more thing that's kind of related to that or related to that. There's also no gotcha. You know, like I see so many people, so a woke, a, a, you know, a woke academic or a woke person of high profile or something will put out some something deranged and they'll put out a piece of information like gotcha. Hmm. But it's not a gotcha. It's only a gotcha if you abide by the basic rules of reason and evidence. For them, it's not a gotcha at all. So be be careful of there you go again. <laughs> I will try my best. Um, <laughs> speaking of breaking points, I, I think there was, a, there was a big one this week in in on my side of the pond in the UK. Um, the beloved uh, children's author Roald Dahl oh, yeah. um, obviously wrote yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, etc. And yeah, they took fat, the word fat out of that. Yeah, yeah, fat, uh, ugly was another word. Um, I, I think it was Puffin Books that hired a uh, set of sensitivity readers uh, to, right. to heavily edit the books. Um, and from what I'm seeing, the backlash seems to be coming from both sides of the political uh, spectrum. I think this is a, you know, this is an, an author that a lot of, um, you know, people my age or, or, or even younger, the people that tend to engage me in too. sort of woke culture they, they, you know a lot of people well, we all grew up with these these are our childhood and i think this is a, a big um a big uh sticking point for a lot of people is the backlash seems to be coming from both sides what did you make of that when you first because when i saw it i thought i was reading something satirical oh no 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 i, I when i read it i thought it was a natural consequence of the ideology hmm I mean, there is no, you know, uh, again, going back to the Oxford Union debates, has woke culture gone too far? Should You should uh, check out Jim's debate. He argues on the other side, James Lindsay, uh, 
but the people on his side argued what he argued for unironically woke cannot go too far according to its own norms Hmm. so when i saw that i just it just made total sense to me yeah and the next thing is to is to lash out at all those people as racist homophobes ableist bigots and misogynists who said that the document shouldn't be or the the uh, the original work shouldn't be corrected Mm. and then to try to cancel them and have a campaign against them as we start to wind down, I just have a couple of questions that I ask every guest, regardless of the topic. These are quite quick ones, so I won't take up too much more of your time. Um, the first one, I wonder, could you name maybe two or three books that have had a massive impact on who Peter Bogassian is today? Um, Plato's Republic. Plato's Apology. And Michael Shermer's Why People Believe Weird Things. Mm. I skipped a couple thousand years in there. (laughs) (laughs) You said said two or three, so I gave you you two. Amazing. amazing. Well, two questions left. Um, If you could sort of distill all your messaging, um, all the things that, you know, you, you speak about, the things you stand for, and you distilled them down into sort of one message... And, you know, we could guarantee today that every person in the world right now was going to hear this message broadcast to them. What would Peter Bogassian's message to the world be? That's a that's a big question. Um, it's a real tough one. It's a tough one. Because on the one hand, I'll just think, think, think through it out loud. Because on the one hand, I want to say something about the importance of compassion Mm. um but i don't but i don't i don't think that's my primary message i think my primary message would be it's a morally good thing morally good thing it's a morally good thing to change your mind in the face of reason and evidence Mm. i like that and the way to do that, one way to do that, so you know, a lot of critical thinking, if not the most important aspect, in, in my opinion, since you asked what's my message, uh, is it's an attitude. So there's a skill set and an attitude. And the attitude being trustful of reason from the American Philosophical Association's 1990, 1991 Delphi report, being willing to revise your beliefs. I think that that is something that, um, I think that's a message that's overlooked. I think my second message would be discourse, just two words, discourse, uh, three words, discourse and dialogue. Hmm. Discourse and dialogue are absolutely indispensable for civil societies and to lead a good life. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, the last question I have may be a little bit difficult for you since oh, no. you know, you're know you a man oh, who's, no. who's, who's read a lot of philosophy and I guess this is the sort of big question, but. It doesn't have to be a deep, meaningful answer. It could be anything. Okay. It could be true. You know, it could be something trivial, whatever. But right now, for Peter Bogassian, what makes life worth living? I guess you could. I, there are many ways to interpret that question. Um, 
I mean, the only, I, I guess the way I think about it is if I were to die now, what would be a bummer about that? Yeah. And I think the bummer about that would be that I couldn't be there for when my kids need me. Mm. And so I guess the, the, I guess, I guess if I, if I didn't have kids, the answer would be very different, but uh, what gives life meaning is the, the fact that I can um, help and provide whatever guidance I am capable of to my children. That, that, that would, that would be the answer. Beautifully put, sir. Well, for everyone listening right now, everyone watching, listening, uh, if they're not already familiar, where can these guys connect with you? Are you on social media? Is there a website we can send them to? Everything. Where's the best place? We're Bogosian.com, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N.com. I'm on Twitter, Peter, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N. I'm on YouTube. I think it's Dr. Dr. Peter Bogosian. Or just put Peter Bogosian. It comes in. Um, yeah, I mean, Instagram, which I don't use, which I'm trying to use more. Uh, TikTok. We got so many strikes from TikTok. We're about to be thrown off of that. Uh, I've almost been there uh, myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. So thanks. I I appreciate it. Sorry, I hyper caffeinated. If I talk too much, I love it. You brought. You certainly brought the energy. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have had you on the podcast. I appreciate your time, and I hope we get to do this again someday. Thank you. And if we'll go, if I go to Wales, we'll roll. Love it. Can't wait, my friend. <laughs>